They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Is that true? Amen. There's no doubt that pictures can be powerful, emotion evoking. But is it true that a single picture is more precious, more thought provoking than a thousand words? I mean, perhaps the, the most iconic picture from the civil rights movement. It shows a white police officer sicking a dog on a young black teen seemingly involved in the movement. However, upon further investigation and an interview with that teen years later, you come to find out that the officer was actually trying to keep the boy from getting bit by the dog. That's not to say there weren't other tragedies that happened that day or during that movement, but only to say that pictures do not tell the full story. Amen. I say that because our passage this morning has been portrayed in thousands of pictures over time. The scene of Jesus's Last Supper has hung over many grandmothers dining room tables and in many portrait galleries around the world. And it's garnered all kinds of attention and analysis from Jesus' skin color. Sometimes he's white, sometimes he's black. Sometimes he got long flowing blonde hair, other times thick black dreads. To the seating chart, which one is which disciple? To what's even on the table? Throughout history, it's been viewed as one of the most important and powerful pictures. But none of the pictures do it justice. All right. We need words to show us just how powerful, how precious, how thought-provoking this scene is. In other words, we need our Bibles. Amen. And so if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and this morning, we'll look at verses 17 through 35 together. Matthew 26, verses 17 through 35. You can find it on page 832, if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs. And if you need a Bible of your own that you can easily understand, feel free to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. If there's no Bible near you, there's a Bible somewhere under some chair in here. All right. Find that one. Yeah. Feel free to use it and take it home. Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 35. We read, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were all very sorrowful and began to, to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but 
woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. As we read through this passage, we, we see there are several characters in this account. You've got Jesus. You've got the 12 disciples and specifically Judas and Peter singled out by name. But as we walk through this passage, I want us to keep our eyes peeled on Jesus. He is the main character in this passage. And as we walk through this passage, there are three things specifically I want us to see as we stare at Jesus. Those will be the three points of the sermon. Point number one, see his sovereignty displayed. See his sovereignty displayed. You see that in verses 17 through 25. Point number two, see his sacrifice explained. See his sacrifice explained. We see that in verses 26 through 29. And point number three, see his grace magnified. We see that in verses 30 through 35. So number one, see his sovereignty displayed. Number two, see his sacrifice explained. And thirdly, see his grace magnified. Point number one, see his sovereignty displayed. And we touched on this in our passage last week, but here it is, the final days, the final hours of Jesus' life. And here he is directing, orchestrating every single detail. He's in complete control. If you flip back a page to where we were last week, you remember up in verse 2 that Jesus had predicted his death. He said, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Well, verse 17 of our passage meets us with the two days up. We read that it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a week-long celebration with the Passover kicking things off, which was significant. I mean, in Mark's account, he makes it more explicit. 
in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, he tells us that on this first day of the feast is when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. The Jewish historian Josephus, who lived in the first century, said that up to 250,000 lambs were slaughtered to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. It was a bloody time. And every Jew would participate. I mean, I mean that's, that's what the law called for. We noted last week that the Passover was instituted in Exodus chapter 12, when God acted to rescue the people of Israel from Egypt. The final act that would win their release would be God bringing death to all the firstborn sons in Egypt. But he instructed the Israelites to slaughter a lamb, a spotless lamb, and to spread its blood on the doorpost. So that when God passed through the land in death, he would pass over the Israelites' homes when he saw the blood of the lamb. And inside the Israelite homes, the families would be celebrating the Passover meat feasts marked by eating the flesh of the lamb and other prescribed foods, all to, to celebrate God's rescue of his people. It was to be commemorated ongoing in the lives of subsequent Israelite generations. And so you see that there's already heavy symbolism for any Jew who would have been living at this time. There's heavy symbolism for the Jewish readers who would have first read Matthew's gospel. When they read in verse 17, now on the first day of 11 bread, they know what that means. The lambs sacrificed, the Passover celebrated. And it's at this time, the Passover, that Jesus chooses to die. I mean, as far back as Matthew 12, the religious leaders conspired to kill him. Had they had their way, Jesus would have been gone a long time ago. But they are not in control. He is. For, for the observant Bible reader, it, it, it all comes down to this day. And it's all starting to make sense. It's why Jesus couldn't just die on any random day. It's why several times in John, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. It's why John the Baptist, early in the Gospel of John, points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was arranging everything to present himself as the Lamb who would be sacrificed and slaughtered for his people. See him even at this final Passover arranging things. He's been arranging things all his life to lead to this point. And even at this point, here he is arranging things. His disciples ask in verse 17 where they should prepare for him to eat the Passover. No, no, no. Just a quick aside. Just notice that in his last days, Jesus is intentionally being obedient to the law. The Passover must be kept. And so Jesus keeps it. With death looming, desperate times don't demand of Jesus less faithfulness, but more. Jesus was a faithful Jew, a man who kept the law. All the you shalls in the law, Jesus did. And all the you shall nots in the law, Jesus did not do. 
He lived a perfect life even up to death. The life of following God's perfect law that you and I should have lived. In any case, Jesus directs his disciples what to do as it relates to this final Passover. In verse 18, he tells them to to go to this random man's house. He's not even named. Go go to such and such's house, Mr. So-and-so, and say to him, demand of him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will eat the Passover at your house with my disciples. Okay, who are you, guy? Well, now is the time for, for his death. You hear Jesus say, my time has come. Yes. And now is the time. He knows it. And he demands of this man his home to eat the Passover meal. Now, did he already previously arrange with this man to, to let his disciples in? Or, or was this but another display of his divine power? Showing supernatural knowledge of people and their responses. We don't know for sure, but what is evident is that Jesus is in total charge. He's planning every single detail in preparation of this meal and in preparation of his death. And as he directs, verse 19 says, the disciples followed. But friends, that's the only appropriate response to the one who commands everything. I mean, this book of Matthew has shown us Jesus in command over every single thing. It has shown us Jesus in command of the waves of the sea. Jesus in command over demons. Jesus in command over diseases. Jesus in command over others' death. And now even in command over the details of his own death. To someone with such command, we ought to submit to his sovereign rule. We see Jesus' sovereignty over the preparation of the Passover meal in verses 17 through 19. And in verses 20 through 25, at the Passover meal, we see Jesus' sovereignty still as he predicts his betrayal and as he purposes to fulfill scripture. Verses 20 and 21 tell us that When evening came, Jesus reclined at table with his 12 disciples, eating the Passover meal. It's a picture of intimacy, a meal shared with those closest to you. The 12 who'd walked intimately with Jesus during his public ministry these last three years. But as they were eating, as they were enjoying each other's company, Jesus kills the vibe. He abruptly says in verse 21, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The record scratches. The CD skips. The game glitches. All the good vibes suddenly stop. What? It's a shock to all the disciples. It was totally against everything they were seeing and experiencing. I mean, here they are all together enjoying this most holy meal with Jesus and reclining at table together. And Jesus is saying that one of them is going to betray him. And none of them expect a betrayal. And none of them expect that it could be them. Or that there were any other clear candidates. I mean, look at verse 22. They were all very sorrowful. 
and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? The better translation would be, surely not I, Lord. Or surely you don't mean me, do you, Lord? On the surface, everybody seemed completely devoted to Jesus. They couldn't suspect any disloyalty among the group. Little did they know what had been happening behind the scenes. I mean, look back up to where we were last week in verses 14 through 16. We read there that that one of the 12, Judas, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas secretly plotted with the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus and to put him to death. But Jesus blows up Judas's spot. One of you will betray me. It must have perked Judas's ears. I mean, one minute he's stuffing his mouth with lamb and bitter herbs, his, his little secret plan hidden in his heart. And then Jesus says this. He probably about choked on the chunk of lamb he was chewing. How does he know? I mean, no one else was around. It was just me and the chief priest. How does he know? How can he not know? He is God, the son. Judas and the chief priest thought that they were in control, making plans to end Jesus's life. Jesus lets it be known here. He has been in control all along. Their extensive plans are subservient to his divine plan. Jesus continues in verse 23, saying broadly that the one who will betray me is the one who has dipped his hand with me in the dish. It referred to the eating custom of those days that people would take a piece of bread and dip it into a a bowl mixed with uh, sauce and herbs. So, so it's not a very specific thing here. All 12 of them would have dipped their hands in that dish. Uh, to put it in, in modern parlance, to, to put it in modern terms. It's like Jesus is around the table with his 12 disciples eating chips and salsa. All right. All right. They've all been grabbing chips and dipping it in, in the salsa. And Jesus then says, "Uh, the one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me is the one who will betray me. Well, that doesn't give us any further information, Jesus, than what you just said, that one of us will betray you. Everybody been dipping their hand in the dish. It's not very specific. It it didn't single anyone out. Well, why not? Well, because had the disciples known that it was Judas who would betray Jesus, they surely would have stopped him in his tracks. I mean, we'll see in a few weeks when Jesus is actually arrested. Peter picks up his sword and is ready to throw down to stop the thing from happening. Right? If they would have known beforehand that it was Judas, they would have stopped him dead in his tracks. But Jesus fully knows who it is who will betray him and does not broadly share who it is so that they will not stop him. And he himself does not personally stop Judas. He will be delivered over to death only because he delivers himself over to be killed. Jesus purposed 
to die. And he purposed to fulfill scripture. Now look there in, in verse 24. He says, the son of man goes as it is written of him. Or written where? Well, in the Bible. Uh, specifically in the Old Testament that, that pointed to Jesus' betrayal and to his suffering and to his death. I mean, consider passages like Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, that, that Jesus kind of alludes to when talking about the one dipping his hand into the dish with him. In Psalm 41, verse 9, the psalmist says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, you know, the bread that's, that's dipped into the dish, even my close friend who I trusted, who ate my bread, even he has lifted his heel against me. Or think of all of Isaiah chapter 53 that spoke of the suffering servant who would suffer and die for God's people. Or think of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, that Jesus will later quote down in verse 31. when he talks about all his disciples fleeing from him. Jesus was actively aware that he was acting out the unfolding drama of scripture. He is the fulfillment of all the scriptures pointed to. Saints, that's why the doctrine of inerrancy is so important. We believe that the Bible is completely without error. Everything it says is true and every part of it is true. You you see, you can't be like Thomas Jefferson and and cut out large parts of your Bible that you think are untrue or unrealistic. You can't be like many moderns who believe Jesus, but don't like or believe Paul. Who trust Jesus' words, but who can't get with the supposedly repressive words of the Old Testament. Friends, you cannot pick which parts of the Bible are true. That is not how Jesus treated the Bible. It was all true and all pointed to him. Every part of the Bible, from the prophetic books like Isaiah to the poetic books like Psalms. The Bible is is not like a piece of Ikea furniture that you can properly put together even if you've got all these kind of pieces left over that you neglected to or refused to use. No, you need all your Bible. You need to read it and believe it because it all unfolds and it all fits together perfectly to tell the singular story of God's love for his own glory and God's love for his people. And how that love is demonstrated chiefly in God sending his only begotten son to the world to live and to die and to raise again for the sins of all who would trust in him. So that we could be saved. The the son of man goes, but only as it's written of him. You won't get him if if you neglect or reject the writings that testify of him. Jesus was going to suffer. The scriptures said so. And Jesus fulfills scripture. But that does not excuse sin. Notice the last half of verse 24. The first half, the the son of man goes as, as it is written of him, but... Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. 
It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And we see here the, the great tension we see throughout the Bible of, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That God is sovereign and we humans, you and I, are completely responsible for our actions. Yes, Jesus was in control and Jesus purposed to die according to the scriptures. That was God's plan. But God does not make people sin. He doesn't make anyone do wrong. He hates wrong. He cannot be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt anyone with evil, the, the book of James tells us. But each person is, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to, to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Judas allowed his own evil heart to lure him to sin against the Lord Jesus Christ. He freely chose to do what his heart was naturally inclined to do evil. It was not God's fault that Judas betrayed Jesus. God's sovereign will was to put his son to death. Jesus's sovereign will was to give his life to die. But it was completely wrong then for Judas to take the will and say, I'll be the one who killed the man. Woe to that man. Judgment. A horrible judgment is his. So horrible that it would be better if he had never lived considering the eternal punishment that he will face. You see, greater access to Jesus comes with greater responsibility to trust and love him. And greater refusal to do that comes with greater judgment. Young people, I wonder if you consider that as you're exposed to Jesus, as you have great access to him being raised in Christian homes by Christian parents who bring you to a church that talks about Jesus week after week. As you learn about him, as some of you go to schools that instruct you about Jesus, you have great access to Jesus. But you also, along with that great access, have great responsibility to trust him and receive him fully. The more you refuse to do that, you are storing up for yourself greater wrath on the day of judgment. I pray you seriously consider that and do not play around with or waste the great privilege it is to be exposed to so much of Jesus Christ. The solution is to stop coming to church, right? Okay, let me just cut off the access so I don't have any more responsibility. No, no the solution is not to, to stop coming to church or to Abandon your parents and leave their homes so you don't have this kind of Christian influence in your life. Uh, No, the solution is to draw close to Jesus and to trust him and to know him and to love him, to follow him more closely. That you might know know him more personally as your Lord and as your Savior. Judas didn't do that. Notice here, Judas hears this horrible warning but it does not wake him up. What a sad thing to hear the warnings of scripture, the warnings from the Lord and never to wake up. 
Jesus hears this horrible warning, but it doesn't wake him up. He, he's still trying to hide his heart from the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ who knows all. I mean, Jesus has already unveiled his plans, even if not by name yet. But it doesn't move Judas to repentance. Jesus has told of the severe judgment that awaits the one who betrays him. But it still does not move Judas to repentance. Seeing Jesus' sovereign authority, his planning his death, his prediction of his betrayal, his intimate understanding of the, the punishment that will come to the betrayer has no effect on Judas at all. He hears it, hears it all, and, and rather than finally be open before the one who has all power, he still hides as if he's as sorrowful and shocked as the other 11 disciples. I mean, look at verse 25. He has the audacity to ask, is it I, Rabbi? Oh, but his heart can't be too hidden. Our hearts are always exposed before the Lord. Notice even in his address, some of his contempt for Christ come out. He cannot, with the other 11 disciples, call Jesus Lord. You see how they all ask, is it, is it I, Lord? Judas simply calls him Rabbi. A teacher, yeah, well, I'll give you that, but you ain't my Lord. He will not, even now, submit to Jesus' sovereign rule. But his rejection doesn't change reality. <laughs> Jesus is the Lord, the sovereign Lord, and he is still in complete control on his way to the cross. We see that even in the next set of verses as, as Jesus now takes this thousand-year-old Passover meal and has the authority to transform it into a new meal, a new supper that will point to a new sacrifice that he would give. All right. Point number two, we see Jesus explain his sacrifice his sacrifice explained. See his sacrifice explained. And Jesus has already shocked his disciples by interrupting the Passover meal with news that one of them would betray him. And now he interrupts the meal again by instituting new meaning to the elements and establishing a new celebration. The traditional Passover service would involve not only eating, but also instruction. There would be a series of questions that a young boy would ask and that the patriarch of the family would answer uh, to give uh, a summary of, of why we observe this feast, what it all means. He would talk about the significance of the elements and talk about why the, the Jewish people, why the people of Israel performed this ritual as he recounted the story of the exodus from Egypt. But we don't see a young boy asking questions in this passage, but we do see here Jesus take the role of the head of the household, as it were, and explain the elements of this new meal that he's instituting. He explains what they mean, and he tells of a new exodus, a greater exodus, and a new covenant to be established. Verse 26 tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread, the unleavened bread that would have already been used for the Passover, and he broke it and gave it to the disciples. But he explained the significance of it, saying, take, eat, this 
is my body. Now, of course, he wasn't saying it was his literal body. I mean, they saw his literal body sitting right there with them. And they were holding a piece of bread. Right? There was no confusion between the two. But Jesus was speaking figuratively, was speaking symbolically. Just as the lamb present in the Passover was symbolic of the sacrifice killed for the people of Israel's sins, here Jesus says the bread represents his body, which would be broken, destroyed, killed for the people's sins. They were to, to take and eat of it. That phraseology there might sound familiar to you. It was a taking and eating of what God had formerly forbidden that plunged all humanity into eternal destruction. Man, in the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we read, so, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree, even though God had forbidden it, was to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who, were with, who was with her, and he took, and he ate. There was a taking and an eating that caused us all despair. Yes. But here, there is a taking and eating of what God freely offers this bread, which represents Christ's body, given to reverse the curse and to give not death, but give eternal life. Take and eat. <laughs> not because the devil offered it to you, but the complete opposite. Take and eat what the Lord offers to you. Amen. Partake of the benefits of Christ's coming death where his body would be broken. Afterwards, verse 27 says that Jesus took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The covenants were conform, confirmed and ratified by blood in the Old Testament. The blood testified to the seriousness of the bond between God and his people, I mean, think of the Abrahamic covenant in, in Genesis chapter 15. It was ratified, confirmed as God walked through the slain and spread apart pieces of animals whose blood was shed as God walked through the middle of them and, and ratified that Abrahamic covenant. Or most notably, think of the Mosaic covenant in Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 verse 8 tells us that it was ratified by the shedding of blood and then the sprinkling of that blood on the people. That old covenant came on the heels of the Exodus. God had redeemed his people and entered into a covenant with them, vowing to forever be their God and that they would be his people. If they lived a certain way. It was a conditional covenant. God promised blessings if his people kept his laws and curses if they fail to keep them. We know the story of Israel. They totally failed to keep God's law. They were largely defined as covenant breakers. But here Jesus speaks of a covenant that he will enact. What covenant is it? 
Luke chapter 22, verse 20 specifies it. Jesus there says it is a new covenant. It was better than the old covenant, for it was an everlasting covenant. The prophets, like the prophet Jeremiah that TJ read for us earlier, prophesied about this coming new covenant that God would one day make with his people. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 32 through 34, God says, It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God was going to act in this new covenant, not just to give his people a set of laws on tablets of stone like in the old covenant, But he was going to write his law on their very hearts. He was going to give them new hearts that always desire to do his will. And not only were there going to be only a few people who were going to truly know him, like in Israel, where the covenant community was made of believers and unbelievers. No, with the enactment of the new covenant, all the covenant community would know God. It would be a totally regenerate, born again community. And how so? How would it all be possible? Well, God said, for or because I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Here is Jesus speaking to his disciples centuries after Jeremiah prophesied. Holding up this cup. And saying that it represents my blood, which I will spill to enact the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke about. His death would be the one through which God would forgive the sins of his people. Jesus says his blood is poured out for for many for the forgiveness of sins. The key word in that little phrase is the little preposition for. My blood poured out for many, in place of many, instead of many. And this is where we get the theological concept of penal substitutionary atonements. Jesus Christ was punished. His death was a penalty. Friends, all death ultimately is. The Bible says that the penalty of sin is death. Jesus Christ died as a penalty for sin. But he never sinned. That's the testimony of the Bible, even from those who don't like Jesus. We'll see in a few weeks, those who would sentence Jesus to death, like Pontius Pilate, have to claim he has done nothing wrong. (laughs) So why did Jesus die? as a penalty for our sins. Well, he died as a substitute for us. We have sinned. We deserve to die. 
We deserve to spend eternity in hell for our sins against a good and a holy God. But Jesus Christ died in our place as our substitute, as our representative. He took on our sin and our curse and was crushed for us. And for what purpose? To make atonement for our sins. To cover them. To pay for them. To take them completely away. I mean, how can Jeremiah say that in the new covenant, God would remember sin no more? Amen. Well, it's not because God gets dementia. All right. It's that Jesus Christ gets crucified and dies and buries. Amen. And he buries our sin in the tomb with him. And he rises from the grave victorious over death and over sin and over Satan and reconciles us to God. He makes us who were once dead in sin at one with God. That's what atonement means. At one meant. Right. He reconciles us with him. Our sins no longer separating us from God because Christ has removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And, and who's the us? I keep saying Christ died for us to forgive us. Well, friends, the shocking thing is that the us is not everybody. Amen. So that you can't just presume that I can live how I want to live, can sin as much as I want to sin, because the blood of Christ is poured out to forgive all the sins of everybody anyway. You, you met people like that? I mean, they live their life carefree, going through all kinds of crazy sin and claim they are confident they're going to heaven because Jesus died for my sins. No, no, friends. Jesus says in verse 28 that his blood is poured out for the sins of many. Friends, many is a lot, but many is not all. So even the passages that talk about Jesus Christ dying for all or for the world, it's not talking about all without exception, but all without distinction. Right. He died for all, for black and white and for Asian, for tall and short, right? For all tribes and all peoples, all without distinction, but not all without exception. No, he died for, for many. So how do you know if you're among those whom Christ died for? Amen. If you were included in the many. What well, is quite simple? Repent and believe. Right. right now, today, repent and believe. Turn from your sins. Amen, Joe. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Trust in Jesus Christ, the one who poured out his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of many, and you will be saved. Amen. It's quite simple. Don't keep rejecting Jesus. If you want to know Christ as your own and know that you can really claim his blood for you, then turn from your sins and trust in him. Jesus, in the middle of the Passover meal, institutes here a new meal, a new supper, uh, pointing not back to a former sacrifice to cover the sins of the people and to keep them from death, Amen. not back to the, the lamb that was given to cover the sins. Jesus here isn't merely celebrating the Passover to remember the old Exodus. He was pointing to a future sacrifice, one that would come in just a few hours where he himself would be sacrificed to take away permanently once and for all what the blood of sin of what the blood of lambs and goats could never do 
He was coming permanently, permanently to take away the sins of all who would trust and believe in him. He was coming to die a death that would represent a new exodus, leading many people again out of slavery, but not to the Egyptians, out of slavery to sin and into a deep, committed, lifelong covenant relationship with the Lord. In Luke's gospel, Jesus instructs his disciples to partake of this meal, of this new supper, of the Lord's supper. Not only this one time, but in continual remembrance of him. Amen. Friends, that's why we as Jesus' disciples 2,000 years later partake of the Lord's supper to remember and reflect upon and worship King Jesus for his remarkable work on the cross where he gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that sinners like us could be rescued. We, we look back now at what Jesus has done and we worship him and celebrate him as we often take the bread and eat and drink the cup. Amen. And we look forward. We don't just look back to what Jesus has done. We, we look forward to the coming day when Jesus Christ comes back, when he returns and consummates his kingdom. Amen. And we eat and drink with him in his presence. And notice in verse 29 that Jesus says that he will not enjoy this meal again, will not drink with his people again until the day he drinks it anew in the coming kingdom of his, of his father, the one that lies ahead. Amen. His death would be followed by life. Jesus would be resurrected and ascend to heaven and return to reign forever with his people, the people whom he shed his blood to save. Oh, the sweet sacrifice of Jesus, slain for us, risen for us, yes. returning for us. Yes. See him in his final hours, not just trekking to be sacrificed, but explaining his sacrifice, even as he holds up the bread and wine so that we might trust him. Amen. See his sacrifice explained and worship him for who he is and what he's done. Lastly, in this passage, and more briefly, we see Jesus' grace magnified. Point number three, see his grace magnified. Now, what is grace? Grace is often defined as God's undeserved favor towards sinners. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. That's a very good definition, but I, but I think there's an even better, more accurate definition of grace. That grace is, is, is not just God's undeserved favor towards us. Grace is God's contra-deserved favor towards us. And not only does God give us what we don't deserve, but rather he gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve. He considers all the wrong we've done and all the judgment we've incurred and his grace abounds to overcome all the judgment and pour out on us instead of wrath, love and forgiveness and reconciliation. I think we see an amazing picture of Jesus' amazing grace in these last few verses. First, consider Jesus' Jesus's striking statement in verse 31. He tells his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Again, just notice how Jesus understands everything he's doing, everything he will experience as a fulfillment of the scriptures. And see here the heartache that must be his. I mean, yes, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. He has feelings. I mean, see him weeping at, at Lazarus' tomb, that the man has feelings. And so here, just, just think of his feelings as he's already exposed that it's not only the, the greedy out for himself Judas who would betray him, but also now he says that all his disciples would desert him. All his disciples would do him dirty. And even as Peter protests, proudly boasting in verse 33, that even if they all fall away, I, I'll never fall away from you. Amen. And following up in verse 35, that I'll die with you before I ever deny you. A sentiment that all the disciples share. Jesus actually knows that the opposite is true. They would all, every last one of them, deny him in some way at his most desperate hour. Amen. With Peter taking the lead. Jesus says in verse 34, Peter, before the rooster crows, before the day is over, all this proud boasting, you will deny me three times. Amen. Now, friends, if, if we were in Jesus' place, what would we do? If we had such knowledge beforehand, we'd all be like the hell with y'all. To hell with y'all. I, I done shown y'all nothing but good every single day. I done blessed you and fed you and comforted you and instructed you and equipped you and loved you. And when I most need you, you're going to leave me. I'm done with y'all. I'm going back to heaven with my heavenly father and with legions of worshiping angels going back to a people who appreciate me for who I truly am. Amen. Oh, but thank God that Jesus is not like us. Amen. He has such intimate knowledge of the disloyal denial that the, 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 the disciples will be guilty of. Too many deeds there. He has intimate knowledge of how they even one of his most close friends, Peter, will just soon in a couple of moments claim, I don't know the man. He has intimate knowledge that they will all leave him. And yet Jesus doesn't leave them. He doesn't return to heaven. He remains and is resolved to go to the cross and die for the ones who deny him. Saints, that's grace. Amen. That's grace. He knows the worst about us. And instead of giving us the worst judgment, he gives us his best. Amen. He gives us his life so that we might live. Amen. That's grace. That's great. So we might live because he forever lives. And notice Jesus says in verse 32 that he will be raised up. Death could not and did not conquer the God of life. And, and, and when he is raised, notice Jesus doesn't even then go straight back to heaven. He, he doesn't die for his disciples, 
for us and hold a grudge. Like I still remember, which I did to me, don't get it twisted. I went on and carried out the thing, but some repercussions. No, his grace saves sinners and grants forgiveness. And how is forgiveness shown? Through reconciliation. Jesus tells them at the end of verse 32, not only will I be raised, I'll go before you to Galilee so that you can meet me again. After being raised, he will reunite with his people, holding no grudge, no hard feelings against them for their sin. Because their sins have all been buried. Their sins have all been hidden. Saints, our sins have all been hidden. There's no wrath or judgment or grudge that remains. It's only grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. If you go to Christ and keep going to him, no matter what you've done before in Christ, he does not hold it over you. Like, I remember what you did yesterday or how deeply you denied me. All Jesus does is give you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Oh, how he loves us. Against the ugly mar of our sin, his grace is magnified. Saints, I pray this passage, that through this passage, we see Jesus better. I pray that the next time you see a picture of the Last Supper, I hope the most prominent thing that stands out is the picture of Jesus we see in this passage. His sovereignty displayed. His sacrifice explained. His grace magnified. I pray that the next time we partake of the Lord's Supper together in a couple of weeks, you see the kind of visual elements of the cup and the bread, and behind them you see this picture of Jesus, of his sovereignty displayed, of his sacrifice explained, of his grace magnified. And I pray it would all lead us to rightly praise him. As the Passover sacrifice who gave his life for us. Let's constantly reflect upon him. Reflect upon our sin and reflect upon his sacrifice and gladly receive him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. What more can we do but thank you for the Son of God who purposed to die for us. The Son of God who loved us so much to explain what he was doing, why he was dying, how we could be a part of it. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would not only hear but heed Jesus' words here. Uh, Grow our hearts in love of Christ and commitment to him. Turn hard hearts to him. Encourage heavy hearts in him. Oh, Lord, let us not be weighed down by our sin, but look up to the wonderful, merciful Savior who loves us. Lord, we pray that you would help us even now uh, to trust Jesus more and more every day. Thank you for Jesus, our Messiah. We love him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.